If you'll take your Bible with me today, and if you'll open to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and I want to take you to a a passage of Scripture that might be a little less familiar as it relates to Easter Sunday and the resurrection, but I think you'll understand the connection as we go through the message today. We'll be reading the latter part of that chapter in just a few minutes, beginning over about verse 22. I'm going to read through the verses toward the end. But if you just have your Bible ready there and open to that place, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do celebrate today that you are alive. Lord, apart from the resurrection, there is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sins. Lord, I thank you today that we don't just celebrate someone who sacrificed himself on the cross of Calvary, but in fact, we celebrate one who after his sacrifice rose victorious over the grave. And I pray today, Lord, that as we celebrate your resurrection, that we will understand the significance and the importance and how that changes everything. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to give you an assignment, if I can, this morning for just a moment. And I'm not going to ask you to leave here to do this. You may get the opportunity to do this at some point. But in your mind, I want you to think of it as your assignment today, uh, as you're thinking with me through the message. Suppose for a moment that sometime this week there was going to be a gathering here in our city, our university town, a gathering of intellectuals. I'm talking about those that are PhDs and philosophers and scientists and educators, the smartest of the smart, the people who write the books, the people that you go to listen to, the people who have all the ideas and are able to communicate those ideas. There was to be that kind of a gathering today in this university town of of a great number of those intellectuals. Maybe they're going to be on the campus of our local university. They're going to be in a room somewhere gathered together. Maybe it's uh, 15 or 20 or maybe it's 50 or 100 or more that are going to be here. And your assignment, your task is to go to that meeting, to be a part of that meeting. And while you are there in that meeting, you are going to have the opportunity to share your faith with those intellectuals. And it is your purpose to try to bring those intellectuals to a place of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her own Savior. And that's your assignment. You were already thinking about it uh, through the course of last week. You're thinking about it especially on today. You're thinking about it because that day's coming very quickly in the next week, and you're going to be there, and it's going to be your responsibility to stand up like I'm standing up in front of them and to give an explanation of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You think about that for a moment. It probably frightens most of us to some degree. What would I say to a gathering of intellectuals who are the people that everybody else looks up to and who writes all the books and who has all the knowledge, what would I say to a group of men and women like that? Well, I want to introduce you to somebody this morning who had just that kind of an opportunity. And his name was Paul. He was the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's come to a city, the city of Athens, you know, city has a story, Athens has a storied history, doesn't it? An ancient storied history as you think back across it. One of the places that's in Athens that you always think about is the Acropolis. We have a picture of it, and you see the Parthenon on top. Mary and I were able to visit there many years ago. That obviously isn't a picture that I took. 
but you can see down at the Acropolis, you can see the Parthenon, and you imagine this is a bustling city all around it. The Parthenon is complete. It's not in, it's not in uh, ruins as it is now, but it's complete, and there's a bustling city of people everywhere. The thing you should know about Athens is it's the center of the university world. It's the center of the intellectual world. If you don't believe that, just take a moment when you go home and Google Athens, Greece, and ask the question, who, what thinkers, what great uh, philosophers, what great intellectuals came from Athens, Greece? And just look at the list of names. I did it this past week. Just look at the list of names of people who over the years came out of this city, this city that's filled with intellectuals, this city that's filled with philosophers. And the Apostle Paul has come to that city. When he arrives there, he sees that there are people everywhere that don't know Jesus Christ. These are Gentiles. They don't know the message of the Jewish Jesus. They don't know the message that Jesus has died for their sins and risen again. They don't know that message. And what he sees are people that are deeply religious. He sees people that are caught up in idols. As a matter of fact, it has uh, been suggested that there were as many, uh, there were as many as three times the number of idols as there were people that lived in that city. Can you imagine? They were a deeply religious people. By the way, intellectuals are deeply religious people, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Agnostics, atheists, whatever the, it is that they espouse, that they hold on to, that is their worldview, that is their religion. That is what they believe. Imagine for a moment that this city is filled with these intellectuals. This is the university town. This is the place where people wanted to come and exchange ideas. This is the place that people went from to take those ideas around the world. And Paul looks out and he sees this city that's overtaken in paganism and a city that's overtaken in idolatry, religious idolatry, and his heart is provoked. Actually, the word that's used in verse 16 says his spirit was provoked. It means it was angered. He was angered. He wasn't angry at the people. He was angry at the deception that the people had believed. He was angry that Satan had deceived so many of them into the error of their ways. And so Paul, provoked in his spirit, decides, I've got to do what I do everywhere I go. He went to the synagogue and he argued about the, the, Beth, the death and resurrection of Jesus in the synagogue. But that wasn't enough. That's the Jewish audience. He wanted to go beyond just the Jewish, Jewish audience. And so he goes out to the Agora. Uh, the Agora is it's an outdoor mall, if you will. It's a sprawling place. It's a marketplace. It's a city center kind of a marketplace. Uh, it's a, an open-air flea market. People have their different products and their different wares, the things that they make or the cloth or the foods that they sell, sell or the various products. They're all available out here in this market. And this is a place that's busy all the time. People are coming and going. They're buying and they're selling. But also out here in the Agora are these different philosophers, are these different intellectuals, and they'll set up shop. And they'll stand in a particular place and they'll begin teaching and talking about the things that they espouse, the things that they believe. And people will begin to gather around and they'll start listening to them. And as they listen to them, they might interact with them and they might want a response from them about some of the questions that they have related to what that intellectual is saying, that philosopher is saying to them. 
And so Paul says, that's what I'm going to do. And Paul goes right out into that city square, right out into that marketplace. And the apostle Paul begins doing just like the other philosophers and just like the other intellectuals, and he begins speaking. But I want you to notice specifically what it is he speaks at the end of verse 18. He says, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. And there were people that wanted to hear what he had to say. There were crowds that gathered around him, and they had questions of him, and he's interacting with these people just like the other philosophers and just like the other intellectuals are doing in the city. And he's answering their questions, and there are some of those that are intellectual in the town that are interested in what he has to say, not because they think he's right, but they don't think he should be speaking in the fashion he's speaking. As a matter of fact, if you back up into verse 18, they called him a babbler, a babbler. That's not a very flattering term, is it? Uh, the Greek term refers to somebody, or refers to a bird that goes around and picks the seed here and picks the seed there and picks the seed there and picks the seed there and cobbles it all together to make a meal. Uh, Mary and I were visiting several years ago at Charleston, South Carolina. And when we're there, we like to drive out to the beach. Uh, and there's a restaurant that's right there beside the the. Uh, the boardwalk, or right there beside the pier, I should say. And you, you sit there, and you can sit outside. You can sit inside, but you can sit outside. And when you're outside, you're right next to the sand. The ocean's just a little ways away. And you can order, and they bring your food. And they had to put up some netting over the outside sitting area. You know why? Because if you drop something in the outside sitting area, there are birds circling overhead. And if you drop something, they will swoop in. They'll land. They'll pick it up. They'll go get whatever else they can get, and then they'll fly off. That's what he's talking about, a babbler. You know, they're like these birds that swoop in and pick up this bit of food and that bit of food and that bit of food, and they cobble it all together into a meal, and they're saying something derogatory about Paul. This man doesn't know what he's talking about. These intellectuals don't think Paul understands what, he, what he's talking about. Uh, they think that he's just gone around and he's picked up this idea from somebody and that idea from somebody else and this one from somebody else and this from another. And the end result is that he's brought it all together into what he's arguing here in this town square, in this marketplace. He's a babbler. And so they go and they get Paul and they take Paul out to the Agora. Uh, from the Agora, they take Paul out to the Areopagus. I have a picture of the Areopagus. It's also called Mars Hill. It's called Mars Hill because Mars was the Roman god of war. But on this hill is where the city council would meet. They were the state supreme court of the city. If you had a case or you had something that was going on or some decision that had to be made, especially related to moral issues, that they would meet on the top of this rock. But it was also a gathering place where you could get a lot of people together and you could get up on that rock and you could speak to those people. And so they bring him out to the Areopagus, out to Mars Hill. And Paul climbs up. You can see the steps probably on the left-hand side. I'm sure there were steps in those days on the left-hand side. But Paul climbs up on this rock. He's speaking not only to the city council, to the state supreme court, those kinds of individuals. He's speaking to the general populace who had been hearing him speak down here in the marketplace. They've been listening to him, and now a large crowd has gathered together. The intellectuals are standing there. They want to hear what he has to say. I mean, what we hear, it sounds like he's babbling. We want to hear what he has to say. 
And what does Paul do? What do you say to a gathering of intellectuals who are the smartest of the smart, who write the books, who teach the classes at the universities? What do you say to those men and those women? Well, the Apostle Paul had no problem with what his message was going to be. At the end of verse 18, as I read a moment ago, it says, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. He told them about the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, his virgin birth, that he was born without a human father, that was a divine conception in the womb of Mary. He told them about the sinless life of the Son of God who was living amongst us, that he was God in the flesh, that he never sinned, he never violated the law of God. He crossed every T and dotted every I of the law of God. He told them about being unjustly arrested and unjustly tried and about being taken outside on the hill called Golgotha and being nailed to a cross and being, uh, uh, dying on the cross. He told them about Jesus while hanging on that cross, taking the penalty of your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world on himself because a just God cannot just overlook sin. A just God must deal with sin, and a just God who loves us dealt with that sin on his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that isn't where the story ends. He tells them that they put him in a tomb and they sealed it shut, thinking that they could keep him there, and nobody would be able to say anything else about Jesus. He would just fade into the distance but then came Easter Sunday morning. And on that Sunday morning, the stone rolled back and Jesus walked forth out of that grave alive, very much alive. What do you say to a gathering of intellectuals who think they have all of the knowledge that there is to have in the world? What do you say? You tell them the story of Jesus and you tell them of his resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. If Jesus is only a man who lived and was moral and good and was unjustly tried and crucified, and that's the end, he's just a martyr. But if Jesus was buried and rose again, that changes everything. That means that he is who he claimed to be, who he said he was. He is attested to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the grave. And that's what he told that group of intellectuals. It's interesting, the sermon that he develops here, beginning in verse 22. Follow along with me for just a few moments. Let me just read you through his sermon that he delivers. Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill, and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. I'd say so. There were idols of all kinds everywhere. They even had one, as you notice here, I even found an altar, he says, with this inscription, to the unknown God. You understand what they're saying? You understand what Paul is saying? He, he, by the way, this is a great way to begin with people. Start at a point that they know and understand and use it as a springboard to what needs to be said. And he makes a connection with the people because they all knew you probably from that from that little hill, you probably could see that idol. You might have been able to read the inscription that was written on that idol to the unknown God. And Paul stands there maybe pointing at that idol, and he says, let me introduce you to the God you don't know. 
Let me tell you who it is. You know why they had the unknown idol? It's a matter of they wanted the gods, little g gods, blessing. They thought if they didn't honor the gods in some way that they would be cursed as a result. And so they wanted to make sure that every god had a place for that god to be, uh, to be honored. And just in case they had missed one, just in case one had gotten left out, they found a place and called it the god, the, the idol, to the unknown god. Whoever it, is, whoever it is we've missed, whoever else we may have overlooked, we don't want to overlook you, we don't want your curse. The unknown God, and Paul takes that title, and he says, let me tell you about a living God. Let me tell you about a God who sees you and knows you and wants a personal relationship with you. Let me tell you about that God. And so he begins, beginning in verse 24, and he talks about the God who is the maker of all creation. Verse 24, he says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath and all life, or all things. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. In other words, he says, I want to tell you this God, this living God, is the maker of everything. He is the one who created everything there is. You can look at the natural universe and you can recognize that this doesn't just happen. It's not a matter of time and chance over a long period of time. That there has to be a divine architect. There has to be a divine creator. These kind of things don't just happen. He says, I want you to know that God, the God who is the maker of all creation, I want you to know that he's the ruler of all history. Look at verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times in the boundaries of their dwellings. You realize who's in control of all of history? It's God. God has a purpose and God has a plan and he's shaping everything and bringing everything to its ultimate conclusion, which is given to us later in the scripture. God is the one who's the ruler over all things, and all things are under his sovereignty, and all things are under his control. He determines where men will live. He determines the boundaries of the nations. He determines all of those things. By the way, I'm thankful I serve a sovereign God, not just a living God. I serve a sovereign God. The things that are going on in our world today, if I didn't believe that somehow God was working all things together and going to bring something out of them in the end, something that would be the ultimate purpose that he has for all of mankind, I would be one of the most depressed persons on the planet. Amen. That's why a lot of people are depressed. He's the ruler of all history. But he's not only the maker of all creation and the ruler of all history. <clears throat> in the sermon, he says he's the focus of all worship. Look at verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord. There's worship. So that they should seek the Lord. In other words, the Lord has made man with a heart to worship so that he would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Think about it. He created us with a desire for worship. Why are there all of these idols? out here in the city of Athens? Why, why is there all of this religious belief out here? Because God created man to worship. 
And when he looks at general revelation, sometimes he gets confused and he starts worshiping the creation itself rather than the creator. But now that Jesus has come, the special revelation of God, the specific revelation of God, there is no more any place for that kind of worship. There was never before anyway. But there is no place for that kind of worship because now you can see in the person of Christ the God who loves you and the God who seeks you and wants to have fellowship with you and wants to have communion with you. And he talks about God's not far away. It may seem to some of you that God is far away, but the reality is he's not very far away. And if you look to Jesus, you'll see just how close he is. In the sermon, he speaks about the maker of all creation and God who's the ruler of all history and God who is the focus of all worship. But then he says that God is the hope of all mankind. Look at verse 30. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men, where? Everywhere to repent instead of trusting in these idols that can do nothing for you. Instead of trusting in your erudition, your intellect, instead of trusting in your philosophy, instead of trusting in your intellectualism, it's time for you to trust in Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can save you. And he is the hope of all mankind. Can you hear Paul? Can you hear Paul giving this message? You guys don't know who this God is? This is the God who made it all. He rules over it all. He's the God who wants to be, he wants to be worshipped by the people, who is the hope of all mankind. And then he finishes the sermon by saying, God is the judge of all unbelievers. You notice verse 31? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world. That is, God will judge the world in righteousness. Now notice, by the man whom he has ordained. And who is that? That's Jesus. And it's not only going to be Jesus that's participating in that judgment. The judgment's going to be about what did you do with that Jesus? Did you believe him? Did you trust in him? Did you commit your life to him? Or did you reject him in unbelief and walk away from him, refuse to follow him? You're going to be asked about what you did with the man, Christ Jesus. And then he finishes out, he says, he has given assurance of this, that there's going to be this kind of a judgment. He has given assurance of this to all. What is the assurance? He says, by raising him from the dead resurrection. You say, how do I know that God is the creator of all things, the ruler of all history, the focus of all worship, the hope of all mankind, the judge of all unbelievers? Because Jesus has lived amongst us. Because Jesus has given his life for us, and Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Because hear me again, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. If there is no resurrection, Christianity is just another of the myriad of religions that you can follow for the moral teachings and the ethical teachings that it provides. But if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. That changes everything. I don't know if you noticed or not, but his sermon was God-centered. It was biblically sound. He didn't talk about the idols. He didn't argue about the idols. He kept tying back all of the things he said to the Old Testament scriptures. It was Christ exalting because he is the man. 
It was spiritually convicting. And finally, it was life-altering. Notice down in verse 32. This is when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined, uh, joined him and believed among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Do you see it? There were some who mocked. There were some who disbelieved. There were some who refused what the, the, the message. They denied the message that Paul was preaching. There were some who procrastinated. They put off. Well, we want to hear some more about this. We want to see some more of what you have to say. But then he says there were some who believed. Now, I don't know who the woman uh, Damaris is, but I can tell you that Dionysius, Dionysius is one of the city council. He's one of the state senators. He's one of the chief intellectuals who's just heard the message of Paul about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And one of the chief individuals of the day believed in Jesus in that moment. May I tell you that the same thing will happen today. Some of you will be deniers. You'll walk away and say, I don't believe a word of it. Some of you will be procrastinators, and you'll walk away and say, you know, that's interesting, but i got to hear some more about it. And some of you will walk away today, and you'll be believers. You'll walk away saying, the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. So what do you say to a gathering of intellectuals and scholars about the Christian faith to show them their need of the Savior? What is it that you say to them? You tell them the story of Jesus. And you tell them of the resurrection of Christ. Because the power of God is not found in intellectual arguments. The power of God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God is found in the gospel that transforms and changes people's lives. Again and again it happens. And because of the re resurrection, that changes everything. Jesus never wrote a book or a song, nor did he create any art. Yet he's the most written about, sung about, and depicted subject in all of history. Despite never traveling more than 100 miles from his birthplace, his followers can be found all over the world in all the nooks and crannies of the world in which we live. How is that possible? Ah, the resurrection changes everything. There's an author that I like to read occasionally. His name's Sean McDowell. He's a Christian apologist. He's a professor out at Biola University out on the West Coast in California. And he teaches a class, and in that class, he talks to his students about the resurrection. And he gives a really interesting illustration about the significance of the resurrection and how it changes everything. He takes a jar that's filled with marbles, and he sits it in front of the class, and he asks them the question, how many marbles are in this jar? And then he gives the students the opportunity to ask, uh, to give their, their guess, their, uh, you know, their idea of how many marbles are in that jar. Sometimes he says you'll get an answer like 221 or 168 or whatever the number would be. Then he stops and he counts out those marbles 
and there's 188 in that jar. Then he looks at his class and he says, he asked the class, you know, is this objective or subjective truth? And he illustrates to them that this is an objective fact. We've looked at it. We've counted them out. This is an objective fact, and there's nobody in the room that denies it. There's nobody that disagrees with him. They counted it out. They saw the evidence for themselves. Then he says, he distributes to every person in his class a starburst. You've seen those commercials? And you bite into it, and you have that sugary taste. It's supposed to make your mouth light up, and there are all different kinds of flavors and all different kinds of ideas of those particular Starburst candies. And then he asked the class, after they've all bitten into that candy, he says, which flavor is right? Which number is right? It's 188. We counted them. Here's the evidence. Which flavor is right? And as expected, they all say that's a nonsensical question because every person has a preference that was right for them. And he concludes that the right flavor has to do with a person's preferences, which is a matter of subjective opinion, not objective fact. But then he goes in for the kill. He says, I then pose the question, are religious claims objective facts like the number of marbles in a jar, or are they only a matter of personal opinion like one's candy preference? He says, most students conclude that religious claims belong in the category of candy preference. He goes on, this opens the door for us to discuss the objective claims of Christianity. He says, I explain that Christianity is based on an objective historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus. I remind them that while many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it is not a claim that can be true for you, but not true for me. The tomb, he says, was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There is no middle ground. And then he concludes by saying, before anyone can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, they must realize that it's a matter of objective fact, not personal preference. You say, I don't know if I believe the resurrection. Well, have you studied the facts? Have you counted out the marbles that are in the jar? Have you looked at the evidence for yourself? Have you considered it carefully? Because if Jesus is alive, that changes everything. That changes everything. He has a right to call you to follow him if he is who he says he is. Think about some of that evidence. You got the empty tomb. You realize that they knew exactly where Jesus was buried and when the rumor began spreading that Jesus was alive, all they had to do was go to the tomb where he was buried and produce a body, but they couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. They're the female witnesses. You ladies would not understand what first century life was like. You probably wouldn't like what first century was like. Women were not treated as witnesses the same as men were treated. And yet Jesus committed the message of his resurrection first to some women and specifically to a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Do you know who she is? She's a woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. And yet Jesus sends her to tell the disciples that he's alive. And by the way, if that weren't a true story, do you think the gospel writers living at that point in time would have included that? They would have ignored that fact. 
It wasn't attractive in the first century society, but they included it because it was true. Or consider the changed lives. Can I just illustrate one of them for you? His name is James. Did you know that Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary? Mary and Joseph came together and had sons and daughters. One of them was by a man by the name of James. And did you know that his brothers didn't believe in him during the course of his ministry? They didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. And James, hey, James becomes the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, James has has a letter in the Bible that was written from him. And here's what's interesting about James. I mean, think about it. Your half-brother says he's the son of God. Unless it's true, you would never believe that. And James believed it. And when he penned his letter, he didn't attach himself to his brother like we have this family relationship. Listen to how he begins his letter. James chapter 1, verse 1. James a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what James thought of his brother? He wasn't just my half-brother. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or think about the hundreds of eyewitnesses. You know, it's amazing to me how many people can deny the evidence of the hundreds of eyewitnesses. Some he saw individually. He was with two on the road to Emmaus. He was with his disciples on Sunday night when he just appeared in the room. There were many other occasions when Jesus was with people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were more than 500 at one time, 500 in one meeting that saw him. You say, well, all the others were just hallucinating. 500 people can't hallucinate Jesus all at the same time. That's just not possible. Or consider the conversion of Saul. The man we call Paul, the one I'm talking about in this story, do you realize that Saul was an ardent hater of Christianity and of Christ? He was doing everything he could to stamp out Christianity and stop the spread of the things of Christ. He even consented to the death of many Christians. And yet on that Damascus road, he met the resurrected Savior, and Jesus became, excuse me, Paul became one of the greatest apologists for Jesus himself. The majority of the letters of the New Testament outside of the Gospels are written by the Apostle Paul. He was changed by the resurrected Christ. Or think about the martyrdom of Christians. Throughout the ages, Christians have given their lives again and again and again because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Do you understand? You don't die for a lie. Nobody except a fool would die for a lie. Or think about the existence of the church today. The fact that we are here today and we'll be here next Sunday and the following Sunday and the Sunday after that, 52 Sundays a year, the reason we're here every Sunday is because Jesus is alive. And all across the earth, at different times and different time frames, all the church is meeting, people are gathering, sometimes in a house, sometimes in a great room like this. They're gathering together. The church is meeting over and over, hundreds and thousands. Yeah, there's a lot of different denominations. That's not always a bad thing. It helps you to identify some of the distinctions that are amongst us. But the one core issue is that we all believe in Jesus. 
You understand what he says? There's the existence of the church today, and the existence of the church is evidence, and that evidence goes on. But before you become a denier, or if you're a procrastinator, don't walk away and not look at the evidence and consider what it says, because if Jesus rose from the grave, that changes everything. I want to close with a story that comes from Tim Keller. Tim Keller was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. He was very good at getting people who were secular to, to stop and listen to the claims of Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to listen to what he writes about his wife and a particular vacation spot they had together. And then I'm going to ask you the question that he asks at the, at the end of this, of this paragraph. So listen carefully, if you will. Tim Keller writes, My wife used to spend her summers with her family at a compound of cottages on the shores of Lake Erie. Sadly, that part of the beach is gone now, and whenever she visits, she grieves. We all experience loss as we get older, but Christ's resurrection, hear him, but Christ's resurrection offers something unique. Other religions promise spiritual consolation for what you've lost, but the resurrection of Christ promises the restoration of what you've lost. You don't get your body back. You get the body you always wanted. That's in eternity. You don't get your life back. You get the life you always wanted. Again, that's in eternity. He continues, as Christians... Our hope for the future is based on the historical fact of the resurrection. And then he asks the question that I'm going to ask of you. Why wouldn't you want this hope of restoration even if you don't like certain aspects of the Christian faith? And he finishes by saying, it's a future that's unimaginably wonderful and like no other religion, philosophy, or human can offer. Why wouldn't you want this hope of restoration even if you don't like certain aspects of the Christian faith? Let me ask you a question. Even if you don't like something about our church or other churches, why don't you want the hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus and the restoration and the salvation that he offers? Please, friends, I hope you'll be like those two who are named and others that are mentioned that'll believe. They won't mock and deny. They won't procrastinate and walk away. But you'll believe. If Jesus is alive, that changes everything. And I believe if you look at the evidence... It's incontrovertible. Jesus rose from the grave.